Double J, Jeff Jarrett, here to tell you a little bit about the nonstop savings happening over here at SaveWithConrad.com. Are high credit card balances holding you down on the card? If you're looking to give a guitar shot to your credit card debt or give your home the push it deserves with some upgrades and remodeling, you need to go to SaveWithConrad.com. That's right, SaveWithConrad.com. Conrad and his team are routinely helping my world listeners save five, six, seven, even $800 a month. Oh, did I mention you get to skip your next two house payments? Take a cue from The Last Outlaw, because if anybody knows how to get the bag, it's me. Strut on over to SaveWithConrad.com today and see how much money you can save for free. That's right. It's SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Foley is Pod. And of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer, the hardcore legend himself. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mick Foley, telling some of the most popular stories in the history of Foley is Pod. Mick is unplugged and off the grid, enjoying vacation with his boys. Don't you just love that? Is Mick like the most wholesome podcaster? Maybe the most wholesome wrestler of all time. Well, today we're going to be celebrating some of his most popular stories here on Folia's pod. And how do we know that these are the most popular stories? Well, they're the most viewed clips over on our YouTube channel. Check it out. If you haven't already, I encourage you, I encourage you to check out Foley on youtube.com. So you can see all of the great stories and boy, do we have some fun ones lined up for you today? You know, I do a lot of wrestling podcasts every week. That's no secret, but I got to tell you, the ones I do with Mick every week are some of my absolute favorites to record or in person. It's a different vibe and it's a lot of fun. You're hearing Mick as you haven't heard him anywhere else. He adds a little context to what he wrote in his book. He adds a little color and a little more detail to what he can tell on stage. It's Mick man in his element talking about his, uh, first love professional wrestling right here on Folia's pod. So the February pay-per-views announced, it's going to be Vader taking on Bret Hart, uh, taking on Steve Austin, taking on the undertaker. Of course, this is final four from Chattanooga. Yeah. The idea being, these were the last four guys in the rumble when there was some controversy involved. Uh, so on superstars, while Vader and bear are cutting a promo about the match, uh, they're in the ring and you come down the aisle asking why it can't be final five. And where is your, uh, title shot, uncle Paul, which is. Pretty hilarious. Yeah. Um, and then Lowell Mass, of course, February 13th, it all changes. It's the Smile. now infamous yeah. Thursday, Raw Thursday. Um, it's also the day where Rocky Maivia, who'd he ever beat, uh, becomes the Intercontinental Champion uh, for the very first time. And then Sean loses his smile. And you're in the arena that night. And listen, Sean is a... A different person. I think you even referred to him a couple of weeks ago as Bad Sean. Good Sean. Bad this Sean, is, good Sean. Yeah, so so Bad Sean here, a lot of people thought, ah, that injury is bullshit. He just doesn't want to return the favor to Brett at WrestleMania. Um, I'm not saying you necessarily felt that, but you're there in the building. Was the consensus from the locker room, mm, I don't know that he's doing the right thing here. Just help me out with my dates here. Uh 
Sean loses his smile before or after that fatal four way. So it's the month, it's the Thursday before. So it was supposed to determine a number one contender okay, and who's going to go on to WrestleMania to get the gotcha. shot. Okay. But then that Thursday, Sean forfeits the title. So now Final Four, which is in a few days, will determine who's the world champion. This is the one I, I wanted to turn into a Final Five. Yes. <laughs> uh, I remember when I saw um, Sean losing his smile as it being very emotional yes this is just my recollection yes that we weren't second guessing it and i didn't second guess it until the slammies when i saw sean all but do a back handspring on that uh on that stage you know that he and uh, he and brett got the uh a match of the year uh, and he said i beat you that one too um it was still unusual at that time because of kayfabe Still being alive, yeah, a little Somewhat bit alive and well, you know, maybe on resuscitation, but it was still unusual to me to see two people on the stage together collecting a match of the year award. Yes, now we see it on Sports Center with uh Sasha. This is also the era though where mankind invaders show up in tuxedos and their masks. <laughs> so, <laughs> K Fabe's alive, we're wearing masks, we're wearing masks. Leon was still wearing his mask at the Hall of Fame until the you know, year before he, he passed away. Uh, but yeah, you, yeah, we were there in the masks, and I won the, a slammy for Lucius Screw. And at that point, I was sitting with the headbangers, I think I even threw them the, the trophy. And this is also the night that Leon suffers an injury because of a prank that Bret Hart plays. So we'll get into that momentarily because that's leading up to our, our Mania match. It's a big moment. Just a couple nights later. Uh, yeah, we're both wearing the, the we're both wearing our masks. You're protecting kayfabe. Going back to Sean, I'm sitting there and I'm seeing Sean, who does not look like a guy Who's with a career-ending knee injury. But up until that moment on stage i didn't doubt it you know he lost a smile and injured his knee and it's important now we look at losing your smile you know and, and as a, we understand sometimes you have to step away because yeah mental health yeah. is a different conversation now than it was back right, then right but i would say losing your smile is a mental health issue of course and you get worn down uh, there's no rigor of the road to me like wwe um, and to be that guy with that weight on your shoulders, especially pre-Attitude Era when we became that collective WWE juggernaut, uh, before that, there was more pressure on the main events to draw, and your tenure as champion was seen as being a success or failure based on house show attendance. So it's down, yeah. and you're hurting, and I don't think we're speaking out of school. He's probably over-medicating. So he's, admit it, yeah. he's not himself in any capacity at that point right yeah and it's not what it was it's not there's this uh there's this little conversation i had this might seem like a tangent i'm going off off on but there's this story in uh uh my santa memoir about uh being in the front row at uh, madison square garden for a knicks game and uh and uh, I'm sitting there in this time, like, like I am today, you know, I'm over 300 pounds. I'm taking up more than my allotted cushion. And so <laughs> beautiful young lady sits. I see her approaching to sit down. Turns out she's with her mom. 
and I can see the hesitation on their face because people are sitting in the front row. They don't want to sit next to, to me. You know, if you're sitting next to Spike Lee or Ben Stiller, you know, and guys that were there, that that's a, you sit next to this guy. And so uh, I don't think this is a well-known story. Uh, so I understand this poor young lady. She's like sitting like this. If I'm to her, her right side, she's all but huddled over. And now the the MSG team comes over to me, tells me they're going to, have I told you the story? No. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay. It's a pretty good story about uh, timing and, and it's still that uh, I'll tell you why I enjoyed it after I tell you the, the line. Uh, once they come over to me and say, okay, we're going to talk to you at the end of the first quarter. We have about 45 seconds. Now they're talking to me during a one minute timeout. So by the time they walk away from me, there's probably 20 seconds left in the timeout. And the young lady says to me, oh, so they're going to interview you. Huh? I said, yeah. She said, about what? I said, about a book I wrote. So now we got five, six, seven seconds left. She goes, what's your book about? I said, it's about my time in prison. And the buzzer hits, timeout's over. And the poor woman is just oh huddled gosh. like this. There's a photo where it's some, it looked kind of like, she looks kind of like my daughter, right? Beautiful young lady. And it looks like we've known each other for years in the photo because what the photo is, it's of me on the scoreboard uh, and she sees that it's me being inducted into the, the WWE Hall of Fame. And then they show me over there, you know, she goes, oh, wrestler, huh? And, and so she tells me that she was a uh a rocket and uh and then she's oh that must have been incredible being a big christmas fan like i am and i said what was that like she goes oh, sometimes it was like groundhog's day and i said i bet you wrestling and and uh dancing have more than you think in common and she said why is that i said because i bet there were moments when you had to remind yourself that you were doing exactly what you always dreamed of and she said how did you know i said it's not that different than from what we do. So as that applies to wrestling, there are those moments that you have to really remind yourself, this is exactly where I wanted to be. Yeah. You wonder why you're not getting that same emotional boost from it. You know, we talk about uh, they being, you know, the pop, the need yeah. for the pop. Triple H, refer, you know, refer to Chasing the Dragon, which is a drug reference, but it's the same idea. Of, we get it. Uh, why can't I feel that way now? And maybe it's because it's become your job. And it's, and it's again, it's so hard to hit those emotional peaks so regularly to do it in a business where you're away from your family uh, for weeks. You know, even though it was 10 days on, three days off, sometimes you'd be away for weeks on end. WWE, before they got to that more, you know, humane schedule, guys would be on the road for 90 days at a time. Randy Orton remembers seeing his dad for like seven days in a single year. Wow. That things were really tough, but nobody wanted to hop off that train because you didn't yeah. know how long it was gonna, going to ride for. So now we see what Sean was going through. At that time, people would snicker about losing your smile. Yes. But man, you're talking about a guy in his prime no longer feeling what it was that he felt when he got into the business and needing to step away. You know, knee, knee injury and the, the smile issue. Uh, the smile issue being probably a lot more prominent than the knee. Yeah, what a story. I'm sure we'll talk about it in more uh, detail, but I want to talk a little bit more about Tatum Brown. Uh, you wrote into The Observer about it. 
I've been reading with great interest as well as disappointment <laughs> regarding the updates of my book. I won't even try to pretend that I'm not disappointed in its sales, but I'm even more concerned about its negative portrayal in The Observer. Yes, reviews have been very mixed. Opinions seem to generally range from people who really liked it, like Paul Allen of BookPage, who called it highly energetic, breakneck paced, and witty, laugh-out-loud funny, and surprisingly addictive, entertaining, to people who like certain asp aspects of it, but overall found it too disturbing to truly enjoy. And I don't know, it feels like you maybe felt a little betrayed by Meltzer here, that maybe he could have been a little more complimentary since he's... I know. I mean, you know, I, when you write a novel, it's the closest I think a guy can come to giving birth. Yeah. You conceive it, you create it, you give birth to it. And, and you release it into the world. And you release it. And it's like somebody telling you your child is ugly. Yeah. And it really stings. I think more so than the, the memoir does. Um, and I had some great reviews and it did very well in the UK. But that was largely because one of the reviewers on the BBC read it, liked it, reported on it, and that made it acceptable for everyone else to treat it seriously. So there was even like a roundtable discussion on national BBC with three, three reviewers who really liked it, one who did not like it, but they covered it like it was a serious piece of literature. And I, I needed one of those reviews from one of those people. I needed a Kirkus reviews or a New York Times. And it was almost like, oh, I just felt, it was almost, I'm not, the vast majority reviews were very fair. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like there was a Russian figure skating judge in there, uh, you know, like just specifically trying to bury it. And uh, uh, so I did, look, if, we're, if people in the outside world, the, you know, we in the inside world, I think we accept inside the wrestling world, there's a little negative stigma about what we do. Of course. It's less than it was, but I think that there were people, especially uh, a lot of reviewers or writers whose books have not done well, and they see a guy who's had some success uh, with memoirs, and now you're entering their world and just a couple of them are going to make it really difficult to be accepted in your world. So a guy named Jeff Gwynn from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram said, I'll tell you what, Mick, if you get a really bad review, Google that person and see how many books they've sold. You're going to find, and it's so much easier as a writer to show off your chops by giving a negative review yes. than it is to say that something someone else wrote is good. So there were only a couple of those people, but uh, they were, were, I didn't get the break in the U.S. that I needed in the U.K. And that stuff did hurt, it did hurt my feelings, you know? It would be like, I remember going to a American Library Association, and uh, I'm there as their keynote speaker. I've had the two, you know, the two uh, memoirs have done really well. Two children's books have hit the New York Times bestseller list. I sit down and one of the ladies has to let me know about the bad review I just received. Mm. And it's like, why do you do, you know, I, now I know better than to do that. And I've had enough wrestling criticism, so it kind of rolls off my back. Yeah. Uh, and why I felt like I needed to write into the Observer uh, I, I don't know. You know, I probably got it three or four times, maybe four or five times. That's pre-social media. Yeah, know. over the years. That 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 hardened us all a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. mute it and move on. <laughs> so you you do this press tour that even continues to off the record, and you're here to promote the book. 
but you wind up talking a lot about Hulk Hogan taking shots at your body. Oh, and man. this is a PR tour, but yeah. boy, it feels like we struck a nerve. Um, take us back. Why were you upset with Hogan? Yeah, that was Michael Landsberg, right? Yeah. And it was one thing to see the words because I had read the words, you know, and I look, I, I get along good with Hulk. Right. And I know he's had his, uh, you know, very uh, ups and downs, public ups and downs. Uh, and I think he's a good person who's said a few things that obviously. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, but I'm talking about the, the, the racial stuff. Right. Oh, oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, we've had discussions and, you know, he thinks he's alone. I, look, I've been around groups of guys. And when there's a bunch of white guys together and they think they're safe, you're going to you start hearing a little of that unfortunate language. So I think there's more of it than any just I understand that good people can say bad things. It's yes. My, uh, I, I think Hulkster's a good good guy who's done a lot to help people. And even when I didn't like him, I would always go back to Shane Douglas telling me about his first run in WWE and how the Make-A-Wish kids would be around Hogan. He said these kids would just be beaming. And so whatever else anyone thinks about Hulk, I, as long as he's the guy that brought joy into the hearts, and we're not talking about a few people, we're talking about a, hundreds and hundreds of children maybe not john cena levels but here's a guy he he brought a lot of joy into people's lives and i always respect him for that uh so my thought my feeling is that hulk was promoting his book which is doing a fraction of what my book is doing correct and it's probably been brought up to him and he's probably at a breaking point and he takes it out on me and the the uh you know, Michael Landsberg was basically saying, why do you figure you're still in it? And a guy like Mick Foley, so much younger than you, was already out. And Hulk could have answered any number of ways. He could have said, well, geez, if you've seen the stuff that Mick does, it's a wonder he's still it. He could have taken that in a positive direction. And instead, he said he's worked out more this week than I had in the last five years. And he said something about the early bird gets, gets the worm or something like that. It didn't seem to make any sense. And you could see it hurt me because I wasn't a Hulkamaniac, but I understood he was one of the biggest stars yeah. in the history of our business. And he's got this. First of all, I did work out hard. You know, I remember Frank Dusick telling me when I was in world class, he said, the knock on you is that you don't work out. What I heard is that you work out hard and you work out smart. You just don't have any genetics. That's exactly the case, you know? I was all up on the lingo. I knew about supersetting. I knew about rest pause. I knew about Mike Menser's heavy-duty pre-exhaustion techniques. And I tried them all. And there's very little difference in the way I looked when I was working out as hard as I possibly could. And, uh, you know, when I came back for my comeback matches and basically had given up with lifting weights and was doing just all cardio, which included the the hand, uh, not a treadmill, like a bike for your hand, you know? Yeah. So you're hitting all those muscles. And even when I came back and I dropped a ton of weight in 2016, it was DDP yoga and, uh, and swimming and doing uh, aerobics in the pool that helped me out. So there was very little difference between me working out hard, getting the 30 grams of protein every two weeks, and me not working out and eating junk food, you know? So I just never had that genetic hand. Um, 
but nonetheless, yeah, those words, yeah, they stung, man. I was, I was really open to, uh, uh, I was, uh, criticism hurt me back then in a way that it no longer does. Wrote in your book, one time in Baltimore, I had a split eyebrow right down to the bone. If I please do the Harley invitation, lead me up to it. Tell the whole story. Go ahead. All right. All right. Yeah. Um, The deal in Maryland is the athletic commission would take care of any injuries that happen inside the ring, but not an injury that took place outside the ring. So there was an older gentleman who was part of the Maryland athletic commission. I think he's passed. You know, he he was old at the time, but he was a nice man. He always called me Mike. And, and when I got back, I know one of the things I did, I, there was very little margin for error in my style so that if I was off even by a little bit, I would sometimes pay for it. So one of the reasons I think the guardrails I took look good is because there was just like a half an inch. And I, did, I would be thrown in and I would lead with my bicep and then my head would ricochet off my body. You might be like, follow that kind of bicep, but you're, you're lucky you didn't get wounded every time, like sharp. Like. Uh, but in this, in this case, I missed just a little bit. My eyebrow bounces off the railing and it's a, it's a pretty good size gash. And when I get back to the ring, uh, the guy goes, Mike, it's, a, it's too bad that uh, that injury happened outside the ring or else we'd take care of it. And Harley goes, it happened inside the ring. And the guy go, come on, Harley. We And before he could say another word, Harley said, I said, uh, it was a headbutt. And it happened inside the ring. And the guy from the commission looks at me and goes, don't worry, Mike, we're going to take care of this for you. And they did. He put the far, fear of Harley into that guy. <laughs> you, you wrote in your book that you gave Cornette a heads up about the big bump you had planned. Were you going to do that with Fargo or no. would it have been an elbow? No, it would have been the elbow. But I figure as long as I'm going to be in a, a losing effort that I figure, even this, like, there's a baby fish tinge to it, I, I, I thought, hey, if I can look like somebody by kicking out of anything after that, that's what people will remember, and that got the ixnay. Well, uh, the, the smartness of you so early in your career, really. I mean, you understood, and I guess, you know, the old adage is it's not who goes over, but who gets over. Yeah. Nobody's going to remember this random right. Mill Mascaris win at the Clash of the Champions, but everybody will remember the Nesty plunge. Exactly. Yes. And I no, I wasn't getting, I wasn't going to get over by sandbagging my right. guys, making their stuff look bad. I'm going to put their stuff over. Yes. Uh, but I'm going to hopefully. I always believed that I could. I did believe that I could get over while putting other people over. Uh, if the match was strong and I got to do so, and I got to showcase what I could do and a little bit of my personality. He called the drop kick the drop kiss. The drop, drop kiss. Granted, his English is a lot better than my Spanish. Yes. Como te portaste este año? Which means, have you behaved this year? I speak Santa Spanish. Oh, I got you. I don't speak Spanish. I speak Santa Spanish, which I only learned through constant repetition. There you go. Uh, but yes, yeah, so his, his English is better than my Spanish, but it was a drop kiss. Yes. Do you, before you do a big bump like this, do you go and talk to a guy like Jackie Crockett and say, here's what I'm going to do and give yeah, him a head? Yeah, because so Jackie, uh, uh, took what I had done in world class, which was encourage a video bomb, Bob Von Gursky to get the low angle shot. Yes. I felt like the over the shoulder shot was missing out on the, he was throwing the depth perception off. 
So, for example, did you see uh, when Logan Paul drops the elbow yes. on? Um, he looks well. That's count. That's actually a high angle shot where he does look impossibly high. So that's going against my own argument. But the low camera shot was what I was looking for. And Video Bob was able to get that when I brought it to Jackie Crockett. He was the guy who put the shake of the camera in. So not only did it look like I was sailing into your living room, but actually that the floor was shaking. So in this case, yeah, he was he was going to get the good camera shot. Not a lot of guys went around and talked to uh, camera cameramen about their shots at that time. Now it's a given that the producers in WWE do that, and that's part of the reason why they never or rarely ever miss a big move. And if they do miss it, they've got it on another camera ready to go. But that was seen as being ahead of its time. Guys that I knew of did not do that. It's uh, such a memorable spot. I mean, it's the first memory I have of your entire career as a fan, just being like, what just happened? And boy, it's really amplified. Cornette is on commentary and he yells, Cactus Jack is dead. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the greatest calls you wrote in your book you've ever heard. As I lay there stunned, two replays showed the sickening bump while Ross and Corny both agreed that the match, if not my career, was over. When the camera came back to me, I was on my knees struggling to get back in the ring. Cornette went back in action and dramatically yelled, no human being could get up after that, but Cactus Jack is doing it. Man, he's uh, thereby making me in that yes. match. Along with uh, along with Jim Ross, they are making me the star of that match. In a losing effort. In a losing effort. In a lopsided losing effort. Like yeah. there's no. I think there was a few forearms across the back, but it was basically the. I think Corny said something about uh, Mills setting an indoor record for most hip tosses. Yes. Uh, so it was a lopsided squash match, which I somehow not somehow which I came out of as the star of because of Corny and Jim Ross. How many nesty plunges do you think you've taken by that point? At that point? This is the first one on TV for WCW, First right? one on TV. I've probably done 10 of them in the Memphis area at Memphis time, probably three and two to three in world class. And uh, maybe one uh, on the Indies before that. So this is probably what, do the math, 15th, 16th time. Now, when I did it in Memphis, the issue was, this is going back in time, where um, Robert Fuller was one of the guys who believed in me, made me feel like my opinion was worth something. And uh, he had told me when he saw me take that nasty plunge at a spot show for 25 bucks uh, that it would be best to reserve that bump for a special occasion. And he was having his first match with Jeff Jarrett, which was a big issue. And he was like, oh, Jacko, I don't know what to do. I don't want to bleed down to my shoes the first night we're in the ring. And he asked me if I had any ideas. I said, Rob, this might be a good spot for that, uh, that, that bump. And he hears me out, and I and he goes with the idea, which made me feel like a million bucks because Robert Fuller was a great idea man, yes, really great idea man. And so, I, and it had Dave Meltzer was at that match with some of the, uh, I think they had like a wrestling fans road trip, and he was there at that match. Uh, so that when I went off the, uh, went off the ring apron, you know, there was that sickening thud. Uh, Robert ducks Jarrett's loaded. Jarrett got Robert's loaded boot. Takes a swing, Robert ducks, hits me, off I go, boom. 
uh, big puddle of blood, scary sight, and wow, it was uh, it was dynamite. And now Louisville runs a week behind, and so eight days later, same thing, Jacko. Same thing, Rob. So actually, we we hit it in Memphis on Monday, Nashville on Saturday. So there's two bumps now. Na uh, Louisville is now my third bump in eight days. And after that, my lower back starts swelling up grotesquely, like two-thirds of my back is turning uh, shades of blue and purple. And we get to Evansville, Draco, same thing. And I said, I don't think I can take that bump tonight. And he sat there and he goes, it's probably a good idea. Man's only got so many bumps in his body. There's not a lot of people out there. Might want, and then he reiterated again that it'd be good to hold on to that one, which I did. But the uh, the one I took in world class, the one I remember, I say there were two, but I only, the one I remember is when I uh, wanted to take five, six days off to see my family for the holidays. Hadn't seen, been home in 10 months. Uh, Eric Embry came up to me, told me nobody deserved it more because he heard I was going to New York. Oh. And I said, Oh, no, I'm going to visit my mom and dad. He thought I was <laughs> going to work for Vince. Going to so, work for Vince. Uh, we'll break down Kevin Nash and Triple H in a cell and you being the referee. But but first, I want to ask uh, about what Dave wrote here. He writes, Foley at first was coming in just for the pay-per-view and two TVs with the idea of plugging his book on the second TV appearance. He had such good timing returning that he immediately agreed to work uh, with the house shows as a referee as well. Originally, he was to do the June 16th Raw, but also added the 23rd since it's MSG. And now there's a good chance he'll appear from time to time on TV going forward because he enjoyed his return. The idea from the company standpoint is for him to wrestle later in the year, coming out of retirement at this point for a street fight style match with Randy Orton. The idea is they're going to try to make Orton into another rock level superstar. If you go with the idea they have to try with someone, he's not a bad guy to try with. Of course, the odds are great he can't be The Rock because few guys in history can. Orton didn't have the presence to be a star at that level before a crowd last week, but with a new video entrance linked with Flair and Triple H and the Mega Push, particularly the interaction with Foley on Raw, it did seem to be changing fast. It's funny because that same link and same interaction with Foley would have made half the guys on the roster. Orton isn't a bad choice because he's 21 or 22 and barring injury should be a huge star as he picked things up fast in OVW. But this is why when I hear people say that you have to get yourself over and the company can't book you to become a star and that there are guys, there are nothing to guys complaints about not getting a push. Boy, that's a load. While natural charisma plays a part, fans reactions are based on how the company presents you. This company killed Goldberg. They can make Orton. It's not 100% and ability, verbal ability and charisma play a part, but company presentation overrides all of that. The plan for Orton is to work with and go over Shawn Michaels, I'm guessing SummerSlam, and for Michaels to establish him as a great wrestler. The idea would then be his next program would be with Foley, with the idea that Foley can put him over and make the fans take Orton seriously as a brawler. And then given his work in helping make Kane, Rock, and, Undertaker, and Triple H into bigger stars, they're kind of giving The Undertaker a career rebirth when he was on the verge of getting stale. Foley himself has talked about wrestling one more match if he can get into shape, but he talked about it as if it was WrestleMania. Still, he's on TV clearly positioning himself for a match with Orton. So how did the Orton thing come to be? 
Well, this is at a time when I could have a phone call with Vince and be in his office the next day pitching it. I was one of only like three or four guys who wasn't in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> I guess Taker was in Austin, Texas, right? Kane was in Knoxville. But basically, you know, there's two or three guys in the Northeast. So I'm only 90 minutes with traffic away from WWE. The first time I went in to meet with Mr. McMahon, I could literally see the smokestacks from Port Jefferson, which is the town next to the one I grew up in. So that was something we had in common. Um, and so I could make the phone call, say I want to pitch something, and it would be just him or just him and JR. Or at a certain point, it became him and John Laurinaitis. So I know it's Vince. I can't tell you for a fact if, Vince, if JR's there or John's there at that point. Um, he's, okay, what you got, pal? I said, Vince, uh, I'd like to enter the Royal Rumble and win it. And because I am neither a Raw or SmackDown guy, I would like to challenge both champions into a three-way dance to unify the WWE title and win that as well. And he looked at me and said, Mick, I have no interest whatsoever in doing that. I said, okay, I've got this idea for Randy Orton. And so Vince had this yellow legal pad and I start giving him ideas. And the, it centers around walking away from a match, having a crisis in confidence, which I had never seen in wrestling, uh, but we do have in real life. Rick Flair. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had a crisis in confidence that day for sure. And, um, and, I, and I started saying, and once I leave, Randy will try to goad me back in with like political attack ads. And I guess political attack ads were not as uh, omnipresent as they are now. Right. But he said, uh, attack ads. I said, yeah, everyone hates those ads. Like Mick Foley claims to be the hardcore legend. Yeah. But is he really? And he starts writing all this stuff down. And at the, at the proper time, we make plans uh, to do this match that I will walk out on uh, with Randy, something that's never been seen before. And then he will goad me back out of retirement. Taking a little page from Rocky II, where Rocky was retired, Apollo wants him back and he's got the you know, Apollo uh, Apollo Creed versus the Italian chicken. And, and then the guys at the gym were da down on Rocky. He was carrying spit buckets. And then it's like, you know, uh, he comes back to Mickey, who at first has forbid him from f fighting because of his uh, damage to his eye. And then Mickey says, I say we knock his block off. And then thus begins, you know, the, the road to uh, redemption for Rocky. But for me, I'm going to just flat out refuse to wrestle. But the night before we pull the trigger on that angle, Stephanie calls me and says, Mick, we're, we're going to go a different way. I said, uh, what different way? And she says, we're going to have Evolution jump you. I said, what happened to me backing out of the match? She said, my dad doesn't think the fans will ever forgive you. Mm. I said, ah. I said, let me let me talk to your dad. So I call him up and he recites with Stephanie, Mick, you just worked so hard. I'd hate for you to go out this way. The last people think, I just don't think they're going to forgive you. I said, Vince, I'd heard he was a Western enthusiast. I said, have you seen the movie Shane? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, go back and watch it and tell me how good that movie would have been if Shane accepts the challenge the first time. 
because it's all about find that movie's all about this former gunfighter rediscovering, finding that dark place in his soul that he's tried to hide for so long. If he just if they just said, Shane, you gutless coward. All right. Now we're 30 minutes in and we've got no movie. And he said he's going to trust my judgment. He disagreed with me. He thought there was a good chance it would ruin my career, but that if I felt that strongly about it, he would let me do it my way. And then the big challenge became trying to talk Randy into hocking a loogie on me. He later became really adept at it, right? <laughs> but that first time, he's like, ah, oh, man, I don't. Mick, I got, you know, I was like, Randy, you have to do it. And I think he said something about like that. Couldn't I just, I said, we got to be able to see it. If you don't, if we can't see it. It's not as nearly as meaningful. And he was like, oh, he, he was so against it because he didn't want to be that disrespectful. Right. And I said, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. And what was so fun was to be part of that whole building process because in the, I guess I'll do the loogie first and then we'll talk about more of the building process, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, we get in there and this is where I, I borrow a little bit from uh, the original Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds when Burt is contemplating putting the jersey back on and uh, leading the mean machine. And he asks an inmate who had been, I think, a former football player and he was a lifer because he'd taken a swing at a guard. And Bert says, was it worth it? And he says, yeah, to me it was. So we have, I'm in the role of Bert Reynolds, Shawn Michaels in the role of this grizzled uh, lifer. And I'm asking Shawn about coming back, I think it was the, the year before uh, against Triple H. And we do that, it, was it worth it? And he goes, to me it was. And then I, real dramatically I say, Get me my flannel. <laughs> Get me my flannel. And, Brian loved that line. Uh, uh, did he? <laughs> I'm sure. He had to. That's, that feels like he would have written that. Uh, that that's a Foley one right yeah. there, yeah. Um, and so here we go. Push comes to shove. I've got an expert in Vince saying it's going to be the death knell of my career. I feel in my heart. Like the fans, uh, I have accrued enough goodwill for them to take a wait-and-see attitude. I come out, you know, it's for the IC title, which I never won. I do the slow lap around the ring, and then I just keep on walking up that aisle. And now we're live, you know, when Randy confronts me. And I can't remember the exact verbiage, but well, you're walking away. You're nothing but a, a coward. And then just as I had urged him to do, he he dug down deep as far into his lungs as he could, got something with a yellowish, yellowish green tinge to it, and he hocked that loogie right on my face. And you could feel the fan, they want me to respond. You know, they really want me to, I don't know if we've ever had a loogie of that magnitude, you know, that uh, I'm sure, well, other than the one that the Brett hocked up on Vince, uh, but but that, that scene is still so memorable. I can describe it in my mind. I remember it. I mean, I didn't just watch it this week for prep. I think all of us remember that because it did cross the line a little bit of what's allowed in wrestling and what's not. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what was beautiful about it, one of the things, I think this may have been the best thing I was involved with over uh, as far as one of my ideas 
being played out is that when I left, that was a December 10th, somewhere around that area, early December, maybe December 3rd, uh, Randy basically had six, seven weeks to build, uh, to build up for my return. And that's when those uh, political attack ads started airing. And not only did they do what I asked, they like went over what I would have thought possible. You know, and it was like, I think they concluded with going, the truth is Mick Foley is nothing more than a little bitch. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, uh, I did come back at the Rumble. Um, I think I had to, uh, uh, I think I had to eliminate test backstage to get a spot. And then I told Randy, I said, man, we've got so much realism in this, uh, angle. So when you and I exchange punches, let's really bring them in there. He's like, look at him. I said, yeah, make them real, man. People can tell the difference. And the thing about it, Conrad is when we got out there, we were swinging for the fences. Nobody really could tell the difference. They look like crappy working punches, what they look like. And also, despite the fact that I've been training at that time for like four months, and I dropped, I think I dropped about 40 pounds at that time. I would go on to, I would go from 330 to 270. And I worked a total of like six months by the time I uh, worked to transform myself for a total of six months by the time, um, by the time that WrestleMania match took place. But even given that, I was blown up within 30 seconds, <laughs> I, within 30, because there's nothing like it. You know, it's right. one thing to be on a uh, treadmill or a bike. Uh, it's another thing to be in there with the crowd and the nerves. So, uh, you know, despite the fact nobody could tell that the punches were real and if anything looked worse than the working punches, it was uh, it was intense and it got us to that next level. You've heard Mick talk about it for years. AG1, Mick and I absolutely love AG1. We start each and every day with a simple scoop. That's it. That's all we need. One single scoop and a cup of water. And buddy, we're getting 75 different high quality ingredients. It's going to hook you up and give you all the key daily nutrients. And it's going to go ahead and support everything you need. Your energy, your focus, your strength, your clarity. This is just a, a no brainer to me. Think of it as like your foundational nutrition product. You know, listen, we all get busy and we wind up, well, I didn't want to do this for lunch, but I don't feel like I have an option or, well, I know I need to Dude, this is easy. Just one scoop every single day. You're making sure you're taking care of your most valuable asset. You, you cover all your bases. You're looking for better gut health. You want to boost in energy. You want to support that immune system. Maybe you hate taking pills or vitamins. Maybe you just want a supplement that tastes good. I drink mine every single morning. My wife does hers before she even does her coffee. It makes her feel unstoppable on her way to the gym. And I think it gives me more focus at work. I feel like I'm more productive and I don't have that crash in the afternoon. I feel like I'm more productive all day long. We started this back even before the pandemic started. My wife did, but when the pandemic started, man, she had me start doing it. We've done it every day since we are huge fans. I think you will be too. Even our daughters are into it now. Morgan's actually taking some down to Tuscaloosa with her. With every single serving, you're setting yourself up for success. I just can't recommend it enough. By the way, you don't have to take our word for this. Just go look up their reviews. These cats have thousands of five-star reviews. It's the real deal. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1. 
and get a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG one travel packs with your first purchase. Go right now to drinkag1.com slash Foley. That's drinkag1.com slash Foley. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. Scared of him, scared to wrestle him okay. because of the cardio aspect. I I was having a lot of trouble just, you know, more than one or two minutes, and I was really gasping for air. Again, I don't want to overdo the back injury, but the back injury I had in 2006 was really, it was really terrible. It was really serious. And any time I pushed too hard, especially with weights. Now, what I didn't know, Conrad, is that over the course of time, I had something known as acquired scoliosis. Oh, wow. So my, and that was what accounted for the loss of almost three inches of height. When I saw this, when I went to my WWE uh, physical and I saw how badly curved my spine was, I said to the doctor, I said, would that account for those three inches of height? He goes, yeah, absolutely. So when I got home, I, I was so down. Uh, I knew that my hips and knees, all those things were gonna pay a price. I didn't know my spine would be curved. Right. And so your body does whatever it needs to do to keep your eyes straight. Yes. They will make, your body somehow makes adjustments on its own. In this case, it meant over time curving my spine because if I'd been, if I'd been going, leaning a certain way and my eyes weren't adjusted, then you're looking at the world uh, through crooked eyes. So what this means as far as the training goes, especially if you're working like on a leg press machine and your spine is crooked, you're putting more pressure on one of the pads I see. than the other. And when you're exerting, uh, and I was exerting, especially when I was doing the Al Snow 100 rep training, where you know you can power through, but it's just a matter of will because your quads start really, um, start having some trouble at 40 or 50, but it's light enough that you know you can get to 100 if you have the willpower. And when I got off of that machine, I actually had some machines in my house from when uh, my wife and I had a gym in the Florida Panhandle. It felt like somebody had opened up like a, a part of my buttocks and was pouring a tea kettle of hot water. It was one of the most painful, ridiculously painful things I've ever been through. I felt so bad for my daughter, Noelle, because she thought her dad was some kind of tough guy. And then she sees me like, my, I have to be loaded into, we had an SUV at the time, and I'm huddled in the fetal position on the back of the, in the back of the truck. When I got there, the guy says, they give me a prescription for Tylenol. And I, they think I'm there to get drugs, right? And I remember saying to the guy, he goes, you know, well, okay, what's your pain on a scale of one to 10? I said, 10. He looks at me and goes, 10? I said, 10. And I could see the skepticism in his eyes. I said, let me put it this way. When I lost my right ear in Munich, Germany, and I was asked what my pain was, I said a four. I'm telling you, this is a 10, as in it's the worst pain I've ever been in in my life. And I got the Tylenol. It was really unfortunate because there are times when you need relief from that kind of yes. suffering. Um, but I, oh man, I was, I was in a tough way. I was really in a tough way until the doctor, they had a good doctor there for several years, um, and they still do, but he told me, he said, I can try giving you a spinal injection, but there's only a 50% chance it will work. And then I saw the size of that needle like that, and I was, 
50, what are the other 50%? Para paralysis, death? Two hours later, I came back to him and said, please give me the shot. And w immediately when he did, a big part portion of the right part of my thigh went completely numb. Oh. And I had no sense, you know, no sensation there for like um, a year, maybe more. So I'm just saying that to tell you like- the, what, what do you think caused that? It was- uh, The needle touched the nerve? Th it was a sciatic. So it was so many different disc issues. It was, uh, I don't want to depress people or make people say, you know, think I'm patting myself on the back, but um, I was watching one of the, one of the, um, it was either the bio, oh, it was the bio, it was the bio with Paige, because they show her with a doctor, a neurologist, Dr. Maroon, and he was my doctor. And I remember at one time they were gonna set up a, uh, a surgery for me. And then I got a call from his assistant and he said, you just have too many issues. He said, it's not just neurological, it's skeletal, it's a muscular. He said, even if we fix it, he goes, there's no guarantee that it's going to help. And that was when I, I was really down. You know, when I saw it, then when I saw that x-ray my daughter met me when I came home. She was out by the driveway and she goes, how'd it go? And I just went, shook my head like that. So this all sets us up for my decision to take it easy on the conditioning so at least I could be out there and try to pull these things off with smoke and mirrors. But you don't pull off a great match with Kurt Angle with just smoke and mirrors. Yeah. So I felt like I could get by with good storytelling, uh, some creative, uh, some moves that would allow me to take creative breaks, but I did not think that I could get through a Kurt Angle match without being badly exposed. So if you look back on any TNA match I did, and I know there's a lot of people out there firing up their VCRs right now, you will see that my comebacks, I never actually had a comeback. My comeback was almost always someone misses a move, double arm DDT, double down, here comes a sock. I just didn't have the energy or the endurance to do a comeback. A fiery baby right, face. Right, a fiery baby face comeback. So, and it's really hard to take a match from being two and a half stars and make it three and a half unless you can fire up. Fire up and make it. But I was doing the best that I could. I don't know when we'll talk about it again, so I want to bring it up now. Creatively, what were the plans as far as you heard about Terry Gordy coming in as the executioner? Because when he helps you in October at the yeah, pay-per-view and makes yeah. the debut, it feels like he's going to be a part of this gang with you and Paul Bearer. We know it didn't work out. Um, and longtime fans know that as the story goes, Gordy wasn't Gordy anymore by that point. No. But had it gone well, what would it have looked like? Well, I, I, this is what I, I read back at the time, that Terry had gone into ECW and had a nice little run where for at least one night with the Ravens help, Gordy looked like the Gordy of old. Yeah. And Michael Hayes, oh man, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone uh, more loyal to his friends. I agree uh, buddy, totally. buddy Jack, um, Roberts, you know, even after Buddy lost his voice, he had to speak through the uh, the pipe or the straw, whatever it might be. And then Terry Gordy was one of the great wrestlers. I remember uh, Shane Douglas telling me he was on a tour of all Japan and he couldn't tell you whether the matches 
that Gordy was having with Tenru were, were real or not because the feeling was so believable. Wow. You, you'd see a few things in there and say, okay, that couldn't happen. And there was no UFC at that time yeah. to base it off of. I'm not talking about 97. I'm talking about 93, 94 when Shane, when Gordy was at his peak. I might be off by a year or two. Um, but then he overdosed on a plane to Japan. He was never the same. So I worked with Terry. Uh, I saw Terry work a number of times because he went from being in all Japan to IWA Japan. And as proud as I was to have helped put that little promotion on the map, there's a world of difference between IWA Japan and all Japan. And now Terry, who is, he is a, uh, mentally never the same, but physically- He looks the same. And even better. He was like a machine when it came to doing those step ups. That you know, that was his thing. And I always appreciated that Terry and Dr. Death Steve Williams were nice to me on my tour in '91, when they didn't have to be. And Gordy even gave me like a set of uh, little mini speakers you could plug into your Walkman, which is a big freaking deal. Yeah. Not just to get the speakers, but to get them from Terry Gordy. But when he got to um, WWF. You know, that Gordy of old, I knew, I knew that, you know, I knew Terry wasn't the same. Uh, you know, when, when we did the King of the Death match uh, press conference, uh, I had, I had heard about Rotten Ron Starr breaking bottles over his head in, uh, in 88 or 89 in Continental uh, when I worked with him. And I put that in the back of my mind as something I'd like to do. So at that press conference, I believe I smashed a bottle over my head, cut a promo on Gordy, acknowledging that he was one of the greats of all time, but telling about, you know, how are you going to feel when there's 10,000 thumbtacks in the middle of that ring? And then after the press conference, Gord Terry comes up, he goes, bro, nobody ever told me nothing about no thumbtacks. And so I said, don't worry, Terry, we're going to be okay. And it was just odd that I was the guy walking him through that match. And I noticed that the Gordy punches of old, which were just so tremendous. Yes. To me, whenever I imitate a wrestling punch, I'm not talking about the punches I throw, I threw mainly forearms, especially after you know 2000, whenever I came back, I didn't have a lot of faith in my punches anymore. But Gordy had that punch. So I would say like, all right, you know, this is where we're wrestling. It differs, obviously, from boxing or MMA yeah. in a lot of ways. But your power punches in boxing, and they usually come from, there's a short bam, you know, it's boom. It's, it's, it's putting a core strength into it, everything you have into a short punch. Whereas in wrestling, we don't throw it from here to here. We throw it from here, rattle it around, bring it back here, and bam, that's the Gordy punch which was a thing of beauty. Yeah. But he, I, he specifically had been throwing punches that didn't have that authenticity anymore. And that's where I said, Terry, you've got a great reputation over here. I want to make sure that this is as good as it can be. It was only slated for eight or nine minutes because it was the opening round of the King of the Death match tournament. And I said, just uh, bust, bust my eyebrow. Just to hit me, you know, as hard as you can over the eye. And bro, are you sure about that? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And there was, I wanted it to look good for my sake, but I also wanted it to look good for his sake. Because if I'm in a position where I have to sell stuff that doesn't look good, that's not good for me. No. Nope. But I also was very conscious of his legendary status. 
I knew he was putting me over, which was no small you know, feat in Japan and no small honor. And I wanted to make sure they looked good. But, so I knew what I was dealing with when Terry came in. I was surprised by the call. I was happy he got it. And uh, it just wasn't, he wasn't the same guy. Yeah. There's that, there's that part of uh, Buried Alive where, uh, and there's a reason why every subsequent Buried Alive match had a backhoe. Yeah. It turns out that filling a, you know, a six foot by three foot. Takes forever. It, takes forever, right? And I'm trying to do it at the end of a 20 minute match in October, uh, 2000, <laughs> I'm laughing because I realize I've got a line here that I shouldn't say that I will not say, um, but I could say, uh, concern. <laughs> You have to now. You can't tease us. We'll bleep it. <laughs> That's a, so. Their answer instead of a backhoe was to come out. You know, it's to be. I was joined by JBL. I was joined by Gordy. Actually, hit Undertaker. So I yes. lose the match. You know, I'm buried far enough down uh, to where I lose the match, and then Gordy whacks Undertaker over the head. Breaks the, the shovel. shovel. Breaks the shovel. Undertaker drops into the hole, and now we basically have an exhausted mankind, JBL, uh, uh, Triple H. Goldust, too, I think. Goldust comes out there, too. And Gordy, you know, we're tr we've got shovels out there, and Gordy, instead of using the shovel, basically turns around and looks more like a cat in a litter box. Yes. As he's scooping little handfuls of, and that's not what you want your executioner. To no, the executioner okay. does not right. kitty litter. Yeah. All right. And so the line is, uh, is it's the first documented case of Triple H burying WWE. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an oh, it's a horrible thing to it's say. It's a great line. It's a horrible thing to say, especially because he did so much to discover talent. You know, sure. And, but, uh, oh man, it's, I've said that maybe two times, you know, when I've been on the road and you know it gets a laugh, but it's like, ah, oh, is it worth... Well, we know it's not true. You're right. just having yeah. fun. Just having a little fun. Uh, and I remember JBL and I talking, we might have even been riding at that time, and he said there was a father, a father that was watching with his child and went like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. The whole concept of burying your opponent it's alive. It's unbelievable. And keep in mind, this is the main event of an in-your-house match, which is only a in-your-house show. I know where you're going, and I can't wait. Two hours long. And so after the main event, here comes the... When the know, cameras turn off. Cameras turn off. We've just had a bolt of lightning come down from the scoreboard, which is one of my favorite stories. I'll tell it closer to Christmas time. Uh, Undertaker's hand comes up through the grass, right? We go off the air with Jim Ross going, he's alive, he's alive. And then Undertaker's head goes back down with no attempt to rescue the buried Undertaker. Now the the music hits and the new rockers come out. <laughs> they just run past the grave. Yeah, there's no rescue attempt. Like, it wouldn't have been great if they actually pulled Undertaker out of there for the sake of the 15, whatever it was, twelve to 15,000 fans in the attendance uh i because i believe we sold that son of a bitch out so we saw a man die but now here's al snow <laughs> here's al snow yeah yes and they're going to take on the bushwhackers yeah so that's one of your uh that's one of your dark matches uh but that's a situation we're in gordy is not the gordy of old it's just not working out like it was supposed to 
Were you guys yeah. supposed to be a tag team? I yeah yeah. I mean, they were supposed to be part of that new faction. Um, and we how did, cool would that have been? Ah, it would it would have been great. You know, as far back as '91, uh, I'd had a really good match with Terry uh, for Global Wrestling, and that was a big match for me. Like to hang with a guy like that whose style was so realistic. It was part of that process for me of going from a mid card. Kind of, kind of a comedy figure to really being a respectable main event guy. So hanging in with Terry Gordy, you know, for a 20-minute very physical match. I remember Barry Windham remarking on it, saying he watched it. And I said, what, what do you think? He goes, I think there could have been a little more selling. It was a good match, he said. Don't get me wrong. It could have been a, lot, a little more selling. But that was the style that Terry worked. You know, there wasn't a, a lot of selling going on in all Japan. There was some, believable, uh, but you really had to work to get your guy to sell. So Gordy was one of those guys that, uh, you know, you whose respect you had to earn. And if you didn't hang with him, he was going to do what he had to do to make sure that he, you know, he didn't look foolish out there. Iconic wrestler Kevin Von Erich just announced his first public tour. The show, titled Stories from the Top Rope, will feature Von Erich sharing insight into his career, personal triumphs, and tragedies. Stories from the Top Rope will go on sale June 2nd at EmporiumPresents.com and will offer a very limited number of VIP tickets, which include a meet and greet and photo op. Von Erich, now 65, will be the subject of a major motion picture, Iron Claw, which stars Zac Efron and is slated for release later this year. See Kevin Von Erich live September 1st in Dallas, September 2nd in San Antonio, September 3rd in Corpus Christi, September 5th in Houston, September 6th in Shreveport, September 8th in Oklahoma City, September 9th in Amarillo, and September 10th in Midland. Tickets on sale at EmporiumPresents.com. So uh, her last match ever uh, happens for TNA. It's Karen and Jeff Jarrett uh, taking on uh, China and Kurt Angle. Uh, she would go back and forth uh, to Japan. She even becomes an English teacher there for a few years. I think the last time you saw her was Money at the Bank or uh, Money in the Bank. I think she watched the uh, the show with you. There's even a link for your YouTube. So we'll we'll throw some footage up there. Um, was that the last time you talked to her? Wasn't the last time I talked to her. It was the last time I saw her. So she was at the um, Eternal Con on Long Island, and I was told after the fact that um, she did not know how we I would would receive her. She was nervous about it. Um, she had been kind of incommunicado for a long time when she went to Japan, and I thought she was getting her life together. I did not know that there had been what seemed to be a suicide attempt mm. by rushing the police. Uh, police in Japan don't carry firearms. It might be part of the reason why uh, you know she was subdued uh, and she was told to go home. This is what I heard. Um, and so there is a moment, and I'm glad they captured it on the Vice, uh, on the on the Dark Side of the Ring documentary they did about her. I don't know if it was officially Dark Side of the Ring, but it was on Vice. And uh, I'm looking at uh, Joni at our house, and you guys are free to use that footage. Um, so I see her and we embraced and I remember seeing that footage. Wow. I was having a tough time getting around with my hip at that time. Yeah. 
And I asked her if she wanted to come back to the house and watch the show with me. And I remember calling my wife on the way home. I said, uh, she goes, how did it go? I said, it went good. I said, hey, I'm bringing home a, a friend to watch the pay-per-view. And uh, she goes, who is it? I said, China. She goes, no, really? I said, oh, it's China. And, that, and there was no discussion. It was like, yeah, China is our friend. We love her and our family. And uh, she came over, and you see the greeting, you know, with Noel and Joni. And I'm so glad, so glad we had that time that we spent together. Uh, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but um, when I was with Joni, I could see hundreds, several hundred uh, gig marks on her arm. So she had been self-harming, and it looked like she'd been doing that for a long time. And uh, you know, when I was a volunteer for Rain, I learned a lot about people who self-harm and how oftentimes uh, not only is there a release of endorphins, but it is the ability to control and not have a mastery over, but to be in control of a physical pain while which somehow soothes the uncontrollable emotional pain that someone does not have a handle over. And those were always the most difficult discussions I would have with visitors to the RAIN um, helpline help because the conversations would always go around in circles and it would always come back to the self-harming as the only solution. Um, and so I saw someone who was in uh, just an indescribable amount of pain or had been trying to go back and make a comeback. And I did, pl I pleaded with her when I saw the schedule. I thought, you're coming back. Now is the time to dip your toe in the shallow end. And the people in charge of her at that time had her taking a deep dive and uh, involving Opie and Anthony, and I really enjoyed being on that show, but uh, that wasn't the best place for her to be. I thought the idea of her showing up at WWE headquarters was foolish. I just, I just thought that this is not, this, they were asking her to take on too much in, Emotionally. in not looking out for her best interest. She did have a really good friend there uh, who was at our house. And he, I believe, runs her, her Twitter account. Um, personally, I don't want a Twitter account when I'm gone. I've even had that in my, uh, you know, my will. <laughs> no, no, tell my kids individually, no, no. If you want to honor dad on your own accounts, that's fine. But I don't want any account with a blue check mark, you know, where you're saying, showing old footage. On, you know, that's personal decision, but it's just strange to me. And I think Joni's in the Hall of Fame. I think all these hashtags, you know, to get her in again on her own, it's like, she's in there. Yeah. Like, this is a compromised situation. And now she's getting she's getting a, a wonderful A&E documentary, from yes. what I understand. She's being acknowledged. She's being talked about. Her contributions have never been more recognized. It's so unfortunate. I mean, it's so tragic, and it's and from my own standpoint, I would probably get an email once a week from Joni mm. between the time she was at my house and the time she died. And almost 201, I was like, hey, listen, sorry I don't have much time to respond, blah, 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 blah. It was always rushed. 
And the one time I was supposed to see her, she was supposed to be in an autograph signing and she was supposed to be at the table with Noel. And Joni didn't make it because of issues. And so she was struggling until the end. She was really struggling until the end. I think the people, like I said, the same people who saw who put her on this schedule saw fit to do a memorial that was like a circus where you could get a better seat if you paid more money. It's like, no, 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 this is not the way you honor somebody. This is not the way you show your respect or admiration or love for somebody. This is everything you don't want happening. Uh, when we lose somebody. So I'm glad that the pendulum is swinging and hopefully it stays here where we say, this is a woman who made a major difference. Uh, th those two things, the strength contrasted with that vulnerability was what made her who she was, but it was also what um, caused her to leave well before her so time. So two weeks after the Rumble, uh, you're on Raw and you're teaming with Vader and you're being managed by uh, Paul Bear and yeah. your opponents that night are the Godwins, yeah. uh, two very capable hands that you also worked with in WCW. It's kind of funny. I don't think a lot of people think about those as WCW guys, but yeah. all four of you were there, yeah. and now here you are. Uh, you and Vader wind up brawling outside the ring, and you lose by countout. Uh, is Vader someone you would have been excited about working with in a tag team? Obviously, you guys were paired up yeah. thick as thieves in WCW for a while as opponents. Yeah. But now you're going to be tag team partners. How did that strike you? I mean, he had been a top guy there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Leon never really got the run he should have had. I agree. Um, I, some people, I see uh, YouTube suggestions that pop up. Just like so many of you listening see our YouTube suggestions popping up, right? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, but I, I'll see something, and it struck my mind, uh, stayed in my mind, because it said, the exact moment when Pushes died. And it's that photo of Sean browbeating Leon at SummerSlam 96. But even before then, I, we've talked a little bit about this, too. Yeah. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the Vader it should have been. Why they felt like they needed to reinvent the wheel, I don't know. What Leon did was working. He's the most impressive big man to me of his generation. And then he comes in, and even, with the, even by when he splashes Gorilla Monsoon, he's literally running away. And that that running away... That's not what Vader did. It's not what he did. It's not what he did. He didn't mean to need to take him and make him into a, a coward, right? Uh, look, Rudolph, uh, he took on the abominable snowman. Yes. The abominable snowman was the abominable snowman because he could uh, eat a deer whole, right? He terrorized the elf population, but he wasn't a coward. Yeah. It was, he couldn't swim. That was his, his one. And, and he bounced, right? But uh, Rudolph was able to get in there and uh, use the, the water against uh, the bumble. But the point being, <laughs> you don't need your heels to be cowards, yeah. right? That uh, it, Some of them can be. But uh, you, you know, can't be a chicken shit heel and 500 pounds. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a good You're thing. a monster or a yeah, chicken shit, but yeah, not both. You can't be both. Yeah. And they tried to make him both. Uh, and they tried to call him the Mastodon. The like, Mastodon. that's a Vince McMahonism if yeah. there ever was one. Nobody even knows what I'm, I mean. I know the visual, yeah. but I'm just saying, who's saying Mastodon in 1996 besides Vince? I, I, I like the Mastodon thing. I mean, I don't as, hate it. As a moniker, as if you've got a Texas rattlesnake, you've got a Mastodon. But it's almost a, an indication to me that they don't see that what he had done already was marketable enough. Yeah. Like what, he wasn't enough. And he was. He was. He was. So uh, you guys at home, forgive me if I'm telling the same, same story twice. But it's a good story. It's it's Steve 
uh, and I, Stone Cold and I, with maybe one or two other people, and uh, and Leon's working with Sean around the loop. It's been made very apparent to, to Leon that he is supposed to take care of the champion, right? And it's really, honestly, it's really difficult to work Leon, WCW Leon style around the loop because he, he, he hit so hard and his stuff was so physical. And WWE's schedule was more demanding. Uh, WCW, they might put as many dates on the calendar, but so many of those dates were within a 500-mile radius of Atlanta. So you weren't on flights as often. WCW is still a grueling schedule, not as bad as WWE. So just making it and appearing in each town is a credit to the men and women on the card. But uh, Leon is bumping all over the place. For he's no longer that wall that needs to be knocked down. Right. He's you know he's taking bumps on almost everything Sean does. And Steve turns to me and goes, "Hell, Leon's really got that style down, doesn't he? Now he's just got to lose two hundred pounds to fit it." Meaning he's working like a guy who's two twenty. Yeah. And he's not working like a behemoth or a mastodon, and he just got it in his head. But he was still capable, as he showed after he left. WWE. He main evented for uh, Japan for another yeah. handful of years at a very high level. But uh, man, they just got into his head, and uh, and you knew that here in '97. Like, yeah, he's coming off of a tough patch. And also, I don't think Leon was ever the same after the Paul Orndorff yeah incident. Uh, man, you know, like. People accepted you didn't mess with Haku, Ming, like that was a given, barbarian. Uh, but Leon was thought to be, you know, on a level. Uh, not, not that uh, Paul Orndorff was a legendary tough guy, but when Leon, when Leon was on the poor end of that fight, it really got to him because he in his head, a, you mean? When a few drinks would hit him, I mean, he would just he would talk about that fight. When we drove. That he could have had him or whatever. Uh, yeah. He would explain why he thought when he shoved Paul and Paul gave him that first shot, you know, okay, we're even. He didn't expect Paul to commence, you know, and especially Paul had flip-flops on. And, uh, and, and diminished. Yeah. I mean, Paul and, was... Yeah, it diminished him in some sense, a little sense in front of the boys. Uh, but I, I mean, Paul's whole, arm. I yeah. mean, Paul was in a diminished capacity yeah, himself. Paul, yeah, Paul wasn't 100%. So I'm sure Vader on some level is like, he's the office and he's older and yeah. he's the veteran. Mm -hmm. So I could see all of that. And you don't expect, oh, we're not done. Uh, yeah, yeah, you don't expect that. And he, you know, I remember him just saying, I know in my heart I could beat up Paul Orndorff. Like, Which is a silly thought. It's a silly thought, but it got into his head. Uh, to the point where, you know, Leon wasn't treated with the reverence, with the respect, let alone the reverence he had. And he blamed that. Uh, yeah, uh, he did. But there was just a feeling that he wasn't, uh, you know, I remember fans in Germany calling him Elmer Fudd. Uh, and it was just kind of sad because... He just he didn't assert himself. Fans in Germany he, saw him tear your ear off. Yeah, they did. And now he's on the Now he's on the well, Let's right. talk about Corny a little bit. You you, uh, you traveled with him on the road. What was that like? You uh, hit any drive throughs <sighs> Oh, of course we did. You know, so Bob, uh, Stan would have eaten a little better. Uh, but I remember Corny 
saying something to me. Uh, I think at the time he'd had that little health scare. You know, corny. The corny today is thinner than he was. Oh, well, he's in better shape than ever. Yeah. Um, but I remember him saying, like, I like what I. It was like Tracy Smothers saying to me, "Cactus, there's not too many people out there." Don't do anything crazy. It struck me as the most absurd request of all time. That's the way Corny uh, struck me when I said, well, that's the way I must have struck Corny when I, I suggested another drive-through. And he looked at me and said, Cactus, I can't eat anything grilled. He needed the comfort of the fryer, you know, coming from Louisville, uh, home of Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? Yes. Love, love the fried stuff. Uh, so he was, I never had a drive-through episode like the one Jericho witnessed. But what I do have, one of my fondest corny memories is coming out of a arena. Have I told this story no. before? Coming out of arena and this guy approaches like he's a big fan. He goes, Jim Cornette? He goes, yeah. He goes, I just want you to know, I'm suing you for something that happened around the ring a year later. And Corny goes, is there anything I can do to talk you out of it? And the guy said no, and Corny went bam and slapped him across the face. Like, is there anything I did? Bam! And he started cutting a heck of a promo on the guy. The guy's on his back. You don't think of Corny is a tough guy, but it doesn't take much to rile Jimmy. And then Bobby Eaton starts rifling off some of the most perfectly enunciated English I've ever heard from him. Because Which is normally a mumbler. He was a mumbler, and uh, he, you know, we got in that car. We, uh, I hadn't seen that side of Corny. You know, but man, he didn't even hesitate. Is there anything I can do to talk you out of it? And as soon as the guy said no, bam, here comes the five fingers of Cornette right across. I the guess the house. idea being, uh, if I'm going to get sued either way, I might as well have some my fun. shots in. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love it. Um, you happen to remember Cornette's burger order? No. Okay. I no, do you know it? Well, Bruce has made it a whole thing on his podcast. Double meat, extra onions, double meat, you know, all that. And then when you think he's done, he'll drop up. Mother, you know. <laughs> this episode and every episode is brought to you by Blue Chew. We love talking about Blue Chew here on Folia's Pod. It's like a hot tag for your wiener. Seriously, this is for guys who are looking to put on a five-star performance. Maybe you've been living under a rock. Let me explain. Blue Chew is a unique online service. Delivers you the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And the process is simple. You'll sign up at bluechew.com. You'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversation, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. And Bluetooth wants to have you have better sex. Why not? Discover those options at Bluetooth.com. Let's chew it and do it, y'all. And boy, we got a special deal for our listeners. Try it. That's right. Try Bluetooth free. When you use our promo code Foley at checkout, just pay the $5 shipping. That's Bluetooth.com. The promo code is Foley. You receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Bluechew for sponsoring today's podcast. But I want to mention the meeting because there's so many stories that guys have about when they first meet Vince. Yeah. You know, oh, he sent me a first class ticket and picked me and my wife up in a limo and put us up at the Ritz. And he brought us out to the house and they had fresh baked cookies. You get the meeting at the office. What, what do you remember the about that? 
I knew that Vince had really high plan, big plans for you. You met at the house. I knew that in wrestling lore. As far as the limo and those type of things, that was kind of a moot point because I was living in Long Island. So sure. it's a 90 minute drive. And I always, I don't know if a shoe, a shoe is the right, uh, uh, disregarded, uh, I didn't like limos. They made Nobody me, does. Yeah, they made me uh, say, you know, literally sick to my stomach. So I started realizing I have to drive up front. So even when WWE sends a car, or even if I get a, a, a car, uh, um, a if you service, have a driver, you're riding shotgun. I ride shotgun because I realize I always get sick to my stomach in these things. Um, so Boy, that, that tickles me. The guy who will fly <laughs> off a cage got to ride up front. Motion sickness. <laughs> Oh, I, I realized, all right, after a while, I was like, I always have a headache. Ah, oh, it's the backseat of the car. But there was one limo driver WWE had, and I, we ended up talking about this guy in the dressing room. Yeah, I feel sick, too. It was almost like he was driving with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake at all times. So when my family went with me to an appearance at Toys R Us for WWF, I remember Ashley Massaro. It was me and Ashley. Like So after uh, Ashley, you know, you know just obviously a very tragic situation the only photos i had of us were from that um that meeting uh that that toys r us thing so i think i'd been on the road for a while so i had the guy pick me up and my kids rode in the uh limo and at a certain point um the limo pulled over so my two boys threw up because they were so sick to their stomach wow and from then on i said no limos no limos so i would do appearances of like six flags great adventures and I'll do it, but I'm not. I'm not going in a limo. And they said, "But it's in the contract." You know, Six Flags wants to see. I was like, "All right, here's the exit. You guys meet me at this exit. I'll get out of my car. I'll get in the limo and ride one exit up. One exit up. And yeah. if, if it's important, I said, personally, I don't think it helps my character to come out of a limo. I don't yeah. think that you know, it's not the same thing as when Rick can't get out of a you know eighty four Prius. <laughs> that kind of hurts Rick's character." But it doesn't hurt mine to show up in a rental car. Um, but uh, that was that was going back to the 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 the, the first the meeting in the limo. Yeah. I didn't have any of that. But I was meeting at his office. I understood that if he had really high hopes for me, that I would have been at the house. And I also wasn't crazy about him going. What would Mike like? What's best for Mike? He didn't really know me, and at that point, not too many people were calling me Mick Foley. I was still cactus to almost everybody. But nobody called you Mike. Nobody called me Mike. And it's how a matter of how do you tell this man. Yeah. And it would be like that SNL skit where uh, nobody can tell the president he has mustard on his chin. Yeah. You know, you don't want to be that guy. And I think, you know, I think Howard Finkel would fill him in on some details. What would Mike like? And, uh, you know, I was thinking Mike would like to be Mick. Yes. And he wishes this meeting was in your house instead of in the office. Because you're the king in your house. We know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but he he was really, you know, he's very intent when you're there. He was. He, Who else in the room? It's I believe at that point, it's just me and Vince. Okay. It may have been me, Vince, and JJ. His office at the time looks like it did and beyond the mat? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's at the top of uh, Titan Towers. Yeah. Real elaborate, uh, you know, real beautifully uh, appointed. Yeah. And it's, um, and, and I'm lucky that I got there when I was over 11 years into my uh, career because I had definite points of view that I thought were valid. And I wasn't shy about expressing those points of view, even when it came to the name of the character. 
And is that something we we want to get into? Yeah. So uh, I'm curious when he lays out, I've got this vision. What what's that sound like? How well, he's ta- ta- we're having a long, pretty long talk. Good talk. Then he unveils this uh, this face. You know, this uh, this guy with the iron mask pitches me the idea that it will accentuate rather than um, prevent me from making great uh, facial expressions. And I go home and I'm not. I'm not sold on it. I am not sold on it. Um, so it was really uh, over the next few days talking with my wife who made me believe that, you know, maybe there was another character inside of me besides Cactus Jack because she knew that was part of me, but not completely me. And she also knew I was a fairly complex individual and that I would be capable of creating somebody who was not just Cactus Jack with a mask on. Um, so I think I was still on the fence when I went to Japan, and I can't remember which tour this was, uh, but this is one of the three or four tours that I did uh, on the handshake that Mr. McMahon appreciated. So you accepted the job? I, I can't tell you for a fact if I accepted it before I went to Japan, or maybe I had accepted it, but I wasn't sure how things were going to go. So in the context of that first meeting with Vince, you're in his office. How long would you say the meeting lasts? Two hours. And so when you said we had a good chat at first, is that just him getting to know you? Are you married? Tell me about your yeah, kids. Yeah, you know, and I had the added benefit of it, like being in the town over, from, being born in the town over from his view across across the, sound, the Long yeah. Island Sound. Yeah. So you can see the smokestacks in Port Jefferson. I was born in Setauket, which is the next town. There's a famous deli called Seaport Deli. Colby's is on the border of Setauket and Port Jefferson. Uh, so I had that, and I, like we made a little small talk. We had a pretty good rapport right away. Um, but Did he mention I, any of your stuff in WCW, ECW? At he all? mentioned that he was. He mentioned that he was a fan of the promos. Um, and that's why I was surprised when Jimmy revealed that maybe Vince had never seen. Uh, I still maintain, this is not me being bitter at all, but I still maintain if you're bringing talent in, like as Vince is as mindful of he, as he is of every minute situation, maybe somebody should give him a highlight package of the maybe like an hour spent in front of the TV seeing some clips from matches some promos that might be a really good way to spend an hour so that you're not judging a guy based on one match in a ring that's two feet taller than he's ever been in or has ever been in my point in 11 years since i was last in uh, 10 years since i was last in a wwf ring you're working with ropes instead of cables like it's in an, it's almost like an entirely different world and the ring's concrete. Yeah, at that yeah. point, before they made the change, they're still going with the ring that Dick Ebersol approved of because he didn't want to see a ring moving on Saturday night's main event. So now that's great if that was the only time that ring was used was Saturday night's main event, but it's also the house show ring. It's a television ring. And I think that's why the match content suffered for years because it was just really painful. Yeah. Just something like a suplex. When Brett uh, and Owen do the superplex inside the blue cage, 
Like you can see there's no, uh, hardly any give at all. Yeah. I won't say it was like concrete because nothing's like concrete except concrete. But it wasn't. Uh, it it's was not a, the ring you wrestled in in no, Continental. No, it wasn't the, <laughs> the Continental ring. Bumping yeah. Rings. Yeah. yeah, the Southern Bumping Rings uh, or, or even the WCW ring. Yeah. I, it was unlike anything I'd ever been before. And so now Vince is first. He's basically going to grade you on what he sees in that, not on the in the ring, but what he sees on his monitor. You have a 13-inch monitor. That's the world that Vince discovers you in, what you do that first time. Now, as far as how open he is to commentary from Vince and Bruce, I guess he is because that's how I got my foot in the door. Um, but I did take on that job. It was either, I don't know if I gave them a yes within a day or two or whether I went to Japan and thought about it. I do know I started seeing some potential when I was reading in the back of the bus, I was reading um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the cla you know, classic gothic novel, and I was listening to the music of Tori Amos. <laughs> and that's why mankind in his original incarnation was a pianist. He was an artist of some sort who had taken a hammer to you know his whole hand. Uh, for reasons that's I what Vince laid out? No, no, that's what I laid out. Okay. So when I came in... Uh, uh, to do the uh, promo videos, this was the character I had in my mind. And uh, uh, he was a guy, you know, I remember going over the verbiage with Corny, you know, every finger on, every finger on my hand saved two. So these were the two fingers that were undamaged. That was why in my head I was using the mandible claw. And by Vince accepting the mandible claw, he did a great service for my long-term well-being, even though I got banged up and you know, ultimately had a lot of trouble getting around for a long number of years up until the, the hip surgery. And I still don't walk like, uh, you know, there's still a definite uh, limp, you know, limp in my hitch. Um, but by using the mandible claw, now I've got a hold that I can use on anyone at any time that doesn't cause me pain. And he did bring up the biting of the fingers. That's why Bill Watts had disregarded it out of hand. Would I just bite your goddamn fingers? Wait, hang on. Okay, we're we're we're, we're moving okay. here. Uh, the mandible claw is something you created. I didn't create it. I uh, brought it back at the suggestion of Jim Cornette. And Cornette pitched it based on the story from the Fugitive. Yes. And you apparently pitched that once to Watts. I pitched it to Watts. You know, what year was that? That was probably ninety uh, four. Maybe 93. No, Watts came in 93, I think. No, Watts, sorry. Watts came in 92 because he oh, was... Oh, in WCW. Okay. WCW. He was the guy in charge when I did the Beach Blast with Sting. That was like the first month that Bill was there. So uh, back then, you had to run your finish past somebody, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And Cornette gave you that idea in 92? Probably gave it to me in 92. Uh, I was like, Jimmy, man, you know, this elbow, this is a tough thing to do on house shows. And plus you got to either accept a count out or roll a guy in. Um, and I did like, there was one match, an enhancement match I had, and I looked inconquerable. This is 1990. At that point, I dropped an elbow from the apron, went over the guardrail. I'd pulled it in and, you know, years later it'd be like, well, there's, he dropped an elbow over guardrail. I just saw RVD do a moonsault off the yeah. second rope over the, you know, but for its time, it and time. especially, you know, at my size to come over and drop the elbow over the guardrail, then throw the guy back over the guardrail, roll him in. And then I caught him with a bow and arrow cradle and brought him back for the pin. So it's like, a, 
I've just done all this barbaric stuff, and then I lose. I win with a technical right. wrestling move, which just added a little layer to that that character. But I looked like unconquerable there, and that was 1990, even when I was predominantly known for for losing. But man, I needed something I could do that wasn't going to have me dropping elbows all the time. Corny brought up the idea of the mandible claw, laid out the history of Doctor Sam Shepard, upon yep. whom the uh, TV show and the movie The Fugitive was based, and I pitched it to Watts. He shot it down immediately. And Saying, I'll just bite your some fingers. fingers. And, I, and I tried telling him it was a nerve hole, but he wasn't interested. Uh, when I brought it up to Vince, I think he said, well, why wouldn't someone bite your fingers? And I explained it to him anatomically. It goes underneath the tongue, nerves, your thumb pushes up on the nerve. I said, and the thing about it, it's very visual. I said, I can't think of another hold except the cobra clutch where you have both the the face of both the uh, perpetrator and, and, victim. The, and victim in the same frame. And I sold him on that idea that, you know, I was always very camera conscious. And he, I, I don't know if he approved it right away because at that time, especially in the second or third meeting, I was pitching a lot of ideas and he was doing a lot of writing. So I didn't know how much of it would come to fruition. Um, we should probably probably start with the pitching of the name before I tell you how that worked out. Well, what was his vision for the character? You told us what your vision is, where he's a pianist who took a hammer to his hand. But when he shows you the drawing of the guy in the mask, and maybe it's Max Payne, we think it turns out it's yeah. probably The Undertaker. What did he say was the big idea that you had been summoned to his office for? Well, there was the idea of pitching this character. He didn't have a name uh, for He did it. not have a name at first. Um, they threw the name Headcase. It was supposed to look like he was in an asylum. There were the three or four different drawings they had. and the One, one guy, was in a straitjacket, right? Straight, headcase was in the straitjacket. Vince asked me if I minded. He heard that I had the missing ear. Would we mind accentuating that? Um, I was, I had a little tiny lawsuit with WC. I say lawsuit because I was just looking for the money that, uh, I would have gotten for six months had I gotten the surgery that I was told I could get. And so it, well, I didn't think it was being petty. I wasn't shooting for, you know, uh, 3.7 million. It was just a, I believe I should be entitled this because it's what I was told I would get. And because I didn't get it, I'm, because I, instead of opting for surgery, I came at, at your request and did finished out my days uh, as a wrestler, I think it would be good if we stuck to the original plan, which was to, you know, I don't think at that point I would have gotten the surgery because by this point, no, it's the missing years. It's part of me, right? Yeah. You know, it's hard to imagine me. Uh, even fans will gradually accept that I'm going to have these bottom teeth fixed, right? <laughs> and the top one, there's a lot of missing teeth there. Uh, they'll accept that. I don't think they'd accept me showing up with extensive plastic surgery in a new year. Like, I think they feel like this is part of the Cactus Jack mankind they grew up with. And, uh, yeah, you know, you, you can cut your hair short. We're still going to love you. You can get your teeth fixed, especially if it's by Dr. Britt Baker. We're going to love you. Don't, don't mess with that ear. Um, it's funny you mentioned the WC lawsuit. I didn't know that, but I've heard for years that a lot of guys – figured out the threshold for Turner legal, where if you ask for less than six figures, they just pay you to make it go away. Well, I was asking for like 115 G's. Uh, and the problem I had was that I did not realize when I'd torn a knee ligament 
that I had received a small payment as a partial permanent disability. Uh, and so I don't, that was 10 or 12 grand or something like that. So I was acknowledging in some way that I was an employee, even though I wasn't an employee. So it was like they had their cake and was able to eat it too, in that they could pay you as a contractor, but consider you an employee. And it was legal That's in, weird. in the state of Georgia. And so once that came to light, which I'd completely forgotten about, you know, the loss, I did, I lost that, you know, but I wasn't, I lost that lawsuit. Uh, in a way, I wish I'd never filed it because I was, uh, you know, using the ear. And at that point, I didn't really care that I didn't have it. It was just that uh, matter of, well, they told me I could. Sure. And then I came back out at their request to do the matches. And I just thought that they should have made do, you know, on what they originally said. But yeah. at that point, I was a WWE guy and it was probably something worth fighting for that. You probably ask Eric about that because he would have known more about the inner workings of that Foley lawsuit, but it wasn't frivolous. You know, it was definitely an injury. Oh, for um, sure. You know, I've just heard over the years, a few, uh, I think even Bruce Mitchell once took issue with something that, uh, Eric Bischoff said in a newsletter. And I think Bruce was privy to it. And the idea was, Hey man, if you sue for a hundred grand, they won't settle. You sue for 80 grand. Just, just keep checking the mail. Hmm. I thought the, I thought WWE <laughs> fought everything. Well, or, I'm saying WCW. WCW. Yeah. Gotcha. WCW. Yeah. Okay. I should have known. <laughs> Son of um, Either way, though, uh, we should mention uh, Backlash gets quite the reception. Yeah. Four and a half stars, a critical success. Uh, Meltzer would say, by taking a bump off the ramp through the tables and one on the tacks, Orton, as weird as this sounds, added toughness to his aura that needed to be added to be a money player. It's easily the best match of his career against Mick Foley. While regular usage of mass matches of this type are negative, because the WWE hasn't done this type of match in years, it was very effective. Foley, who said before the match he was expecting this match to be one of his career highlights, lived up to those standards, even though he has not done a singles match in more than four years. The key point of the match is, just like Foley did for Triple H on two straight pay-per-view shows in 2000, he had Orton beat him in a great match under Foley's rules. When it was over, Triple H gave the line that Orton is no longer the legend killer, but a legend himself. And in his first singles match in four years, fully motivated by the fear of failure, was his harshest critic. He said he set his mind to the idea that WrestleMania would be one of his best performances, but he felt he didn't deliver, saying in an Edmonton Sun interview that he couldn't maintain his intensity. Quote, I accepted that there probably is no such thing as real retirement from wrestling, end quote. He said if the match came up short, he'd have to recognize something was missing. Since the match did anything but come up short, He's indicated he's up for doing one or two matches per year. As things are scheduled, he'll be back probably in September, partially to promote the children's book he's doing with WWE called Tales from Rascal Lane. So let's talk about the the beginning of that write-up, that Orton had sort of earned his stripes. Mm. Was that... I mean, how important was that from your standpoint in telling this story? Really important. For me, if the guy I was working with wasn't better off after he worked with me, then it was the matches weren't a complete success, no matter how good they were. Right. Especially if somebody was less valuable than they were, which I don't think was the case. But there were a couple, you know, where I thought were 
you know, uh, swings and misses, you know, where guys were not necessarily better off. But by and large, I felt like that was the case, that uh, almost everybody who worked with me felt like it had been beneficial to them. And in the case of Randy, it was so pronounced because we're going to take you to my post-match, uh, the hours post-match, and then we can go revisit the match in a little bit. So I, I had driven. I had a red-eye flight out of Edmonton. I dropped all that weight, so I was going to reward myself. With 272 a couple, is what Dave 272, writes. yeah, with a couple of Tim Hortons donuts. But before I could go in and have the Tim Hortons donuts, I threw up in the parking lot, probably because I had a concussion, you know, probably from taking the back bump onto the, the ramp. I think as you get older, really you see the knees were the first thing to go on boxers. Maybe it's our neck strength. Mm. And I think maybe that's why some of the older guys are having problems with concussions on bumps that would seem to be normal bumps that they could have done in their prime without that type of fallout. So I throw up in the parking lot. I catch my flight. I fly to uh, Toronto where my bags are lost and I've got to wait for four hours. Now I get back. Uh, my son Huey's in the hospital for dehydration. You know, wow. when you're a little guy, uh, that type of thing can happen. So I give my wife a break. I go to the hospital for three or four hours spend a little time with the, the little fellow in there. I go back to watch Raw, no sleep at all, and Randy Orton might as well be a different human being because he is treated that way by the crowd in Calgary that night. And I thought, ah, man, like I, it dawned on me what we had done. Having the great match and that post-match glow, that's a great thing, but to see that it had done exactly what I hoped it would do, and then some, that was the really gratifying part. Uh, within a couple of weeks, Randy was being cheered and they put his face turn into play, which I thought was way too early. But the fact that you had this guy that people weren't fully behind. They weren't sold on they him. sold on him. Uh, the respect the wasn't there. there. And then to know that that match played such a role and to have Randy 16-time champion. I think so. Who still, as of a few years ago, thought of that match as the best one of his career. Uh, and probably you could go through and pick out a, a few dozen, you know, that technically were, <laughs> were better better matches. But as far as doing something for a guy and allowing the fans to see him in a different way, I'd be hard-pressed to come up with anything I've ever done. And I'll put it out there, you know, for the larger wrestling world to have a discussion about a match. Maybe uh, Flair making Sting at... You know, uh, one of those original clashes. Uh, but I was really, really proud of what we had done in the ring, what we had done to build it in the, the uh, storytelling arc. It was good for me to have that setback at Mania so I could uh, climb that mountain and, you know, stake my claim up there. When you look back at the way that match was put together, is that something you had in your head weeks in advance of here's the type of match I want to do? Yeah. So I'm going to be completely honest with you guys, as I think that's important on this show. Uh, I love the idea of let's call it the ring, you know, but those days are kind of behind us. There's only three matches I've been in that were planned from A to Z. One of them was uh, with Triple H at the Royal Rumble. One of them was with Randy that night in Edmonton, and another one was when I showed up to do an FMW stadium show, and Wing Kenamura handed me like eight sheets of notebook paper. Uh, and I looked at it and went, 
Sounds good to me. And had zero input in what was a very good, hardcore, wild match, you know? But it wasn't like, I do have an ego when it comes to these things. I love putting my imprint on something, but when someone has clearly worked as hard as he had to put together something that made me shine and put me over in the end, I was okay with that. Let's do it. Uh, So I made such a wise decision in that as much as I kicked myself in the butt for doing the car show in Huntsville the night before I worked with Triple H at the Garden, I I cancel an event in St. Louis the day before um, my match in Edmonton. So I fly into Edmonton the day before, which should, I urge any wrestler, please take care of yourself before your big match. And Randy comes up to the room. I've never had somebody, you know, this is steamboat and savage type stuff. And Randy, just that moment we had, you know, like we don't have to have an in-depth discussion about anything as long as we both live, you know. We have that moment, not only what we created in the ring, but that night before. And his eyes are just, he's just taking it in, absorbing it all. But even with everything we had planned, if we hadn't relayed that match to Michael Hayes, and then Michael Hayes looked at us and says, you're going to need more time. And he goes to talk to Vince, and 16 turns into 26. Mm. And that's what we needed to tell that story. Otherwise, we've been rushing through it. Uh, a few of the great moments to me in the match. First of all, there's this, this very creative break where I go to set Orton on fire and Bischoff comes out, claims that he'll have the, uh, the, the match will be stopped. Yes. And that gives me a very creative way to catch my breath. And then we also have the moment where after Randy has taken his RKO, it backfires. So instead of me being the guy uh, who had a uh, worse conversion rate with thumbtacks than Wiley Coyote had with <laughs> Acme products, and that I was always going to end up in the tacks that I brought into the ring. Right. Uh, Randy ends up taking that that RKO in the tacks. And again, I say like, Randy, very, very good wrestling, at, you know, the theatrics of it, but he's young at that time. You can't fake the shock that he was in. You know, he was, his eyes were just wide open. I bring him up to the, the, the ramp, up the ramp and I throw him off the ramp, which also gives me a little bit of time to, uh, uh, to rest up as that camera goes over and over and Mike Kyoto goes to check on Randy and all Randy can say is, Kyoto, those tacks were a bad idea. He's re- really feeling it. And now I come off that ring apron with what I think is the best elbow of my career, partially because it's captured with that low angle shot. Couldn't have dropped a better one in my life. Originally, I was going to drop it on him on a gurney. But those gurneys are built like it's like that that WWE table that won't give unless something is manipulated, yeah. right? Um, so I, I man, I, I even sense there's no way I can drop this elbow on Randy on this steel gurney without my body just being jolted, and it's not going to look good anyway. Something's got to give, so. That's where, you know, the platform is just enough that when he hits it, he goes through it. And now the elbow I drop is onto the debris. So it's it's not, I'm not going through a table. I'm not, I'm not breaking anything with yeah. the elbow. 
I'm dropping it onto something that's already broken. And it's, man, it's just a, it's a beautiful elbow, which makes Randy kicking out of it. Even bigger. Even bigger. Uh, when you first lay this match out to Michael Hayes, and we've got all of the props, if you will, does he feel like he has to run that up the flagpole, or is it okay because it's pay-per-view? He does run it up the flagpole. Vince knows ahead of time that I, I want my toys. You know, it's understood that I'm going to have my toys. He doesn't like the powder, hates the powder as a cutoff spot, but he, he grants it to us. Um, there was one funny moment backstage where uh, they want Randy to come out wearing a hockey helmet. And uh, Randy says, I don't know, Michael, I feel a little funny. And Michael yells at him, he says, Vince wants to see that effing helmet. And Randy goes, okay, he goes, I'm just ribbing you. You know, so he would have looked ridiculous coming out. And you could you could argue that Randy should have planned a better, <laughs> a better weapon because Randy comes out with the the smaller of the two barbed wire weapons. And in my head, it's that uh, Crocodile Dundee. That's, That's not, not a knife. knife. This is a knife. So Randy goes to do his thing. It has all the, you know, the authenticity of a wire snake springing out of a salted peanut can, right? He goes, moing, moing, you know, like, and I knocked that thing out of his hand. And now we're off to the races with the, uh, you know, the 26 minutes of mayhem. Was he... Um... Was he nervous about taking the big bump into the thumbtack? Yeah, but he wanted to do it. He What's wanted... the advice that you would give him? Like, okay, here's the... Is there a right way to take yeah, that? Just uh, a thousand of them doesn't hurt that much worse than one or two in your hand. Oh. You know, I believe he wanted to do it, just like Edge wanted to do it two years later. And the fact that he did it without a shirt and that it was such a phenomenal image... You know, I, I mean, I, I wish I'd wet my hair down. You know, it's about the only thing I can say I wish I'd done differently. But in pre-match preparation, preparation, I go to the well. I listen to Winter by Tori Amos, which is my go-to song. Uh, and when I come out of there, it's like I'm flying on a cloud, similar to the way I described the way I felt January 10th, 95, before that big uh, barbed wire match Small, smaller in stature, but big in my head with Terry Funk eight months before we do the King of the Deathmatch tournament. But I remember Stacy Keebler walking up to me and saying, is this going to be one of those bloody things? And I go, oh, yeah. Like, I was so locked in. You know, I was just so, I was exactly where I should have been for WrestleMania. And I didn't get near there. And I realized I don't have another chance. Like if I this one comes up short, I'm likely not to go again, not to try it again. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't want you to give me a number. But was your WrestleMania payoff substantially more than your Backlash payoff? Yes, partially because I argued okay. after receiving it that it should have been more. And uh, and eventually it was. Well, the backlash match was certainly more creatively rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you look back at that match, is that top five for you? Do you think? Yeah, it's number one. Really? Backlash is number one for me. And then where does the the mind games match wind up? Two or three. Okay. Yeah, Hunter and me at uh, Rumble. Rumble 2000 is either two or three. That's probably my favorite of the three. Yeah, yeah. That was a, that was really beautiful. Um, but Mind Games is there two or three. Would Mind Games be higher if it had a different finish, do you think? Uh, it's like a DQ. Uh, well, you still can't get much higher than two. 
uh, or three, I think what made Backlash so special to me is that it was my redemption. Whether people felt like I needed to be redeemed or not, I felt like I did. More than that, Mick, you you helped make a guy. You know, and I know yeah. you're not going to phrase it that way, but let's put into context where Randy Orton was before his program with you. And again, this is April. Uh, five months later, he's the champ. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that would have been possible without your feud. He would have gotten there eventually. 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 Uh, it was definitely, oh, man, I had a lot of people help me out along the way, right? So when I was inducted into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, I just a year after the WWE, I did not want to do the same, you know, same type of promo. So in verse, I wrote my ABCs of wrestling where uh, from A to Z, I picked out somebody and, and I did it as a poem. Uh and I, I think, you know, when it got to uh, <laughs> talking about uh, F was Frogman LeBlanc, who's, mm-hmm. a, you know, a enhancement talent in Dallas. Fro- Frogman LeBlanc, Nasty Ned, you're the reason I'm standing here today. I've never seen an elbow drop that worked in MMA. <laughs> so I had no shortage of people willing to help me sometimes to the detriment. You know, sometimes you're helping build somebody. He's going to become a competition to you, but you do it out of the goodness of your heart, and you probably you sit down and you talk about issues, social issues, whatever. You're not going to you're not going to be on the same page on a lot of that stuff, but nonetheless, we when we want to help, that's the best part of ourselves coming out, the part that helps. Because and I just saw a great uh, documentary on Motown. I uh, just watched it last night or early this morning, about 4 a.m., and that was what Smokey Robinson was talking about, the fact that he actually wrote and produced a lot of the great hits that the artists of Motown had. So he is building competition by giving away some of his best songs. Uh, but you do it because it's in your heart to get there are givers and takers in this world, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm a giver probably to a fault, you know, uh, but that is part of what made me who I was in wrestling. If I had been someone just looking to take, I don't think I could have done the things I did. But other people willingly gave to me. You come back through the curtain. Are you on cloud nine? Oh, yeah. How about Randy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's really happy. <laughs> is this one of those moments where... Um, you know, in sales, there's a joke that when a guy makes his first sale, they cut his tie or whatever. <laughs> is this sort of like that with some of the guys for Randy? Because at this point, he's not been in a feud like this or a match like this or had this experience. And I think we sometimes forget how young he was here. I mean, just to put this in context, he was at his prom about three years prior to this. And now he's here with you. Uh, that's crazy to think you've got that much at life experience. That, yeah, his, at his prom. prom. Yeah. yeah, He's had a driver's license five years at this yeah, point. Yeah. And now here he is in a pretty big time spot. This has to feel like you've done something good and all the boys know it. Yeah. And I think even the guys uh, who may not have liked the promo when they saw it, whether they realize, I don't know if they sat down and thought to themselves, geez, I guess that did play itself out well. And by by Randy showing some fear, acknowledging the obstacle in front of him, he has made himself far bigger yes. than if he had never acknowledged the obstacle. And that's, that's the story I wanted to tell. So Randy overcame. I mean, I was battling my own personal... Uh, expectations and disappointments, but Randy was, 
he had helped create me into that mythological figure I needed to be to make yeah. him bigger when he beat me. It was fantastic. I hope everybody goes out of their way to see it. Hey guys, Eric Bischoff here and just want to call a quick timeout. I want to tell your listeners about what I've been telling everybody at over at 83 weeks, quite a while now, about all the cool things that are happening over at adfreeshows.com. Through strength, support, and faith, one half of TNA's America's Most Wanted Chris Harris has persevered, and wrestling is still a big part of his life. And on a brand new series, The False Finish, Chris Harris tells us the story of his amazing journey in his own words. I was thinking to myself then when that came about, you know, it's hard going through what I went through and not think, you know, would that have happened had I not had a sober head? I mean, or, or, you know, I have I have God looking out for me. You know, would something like that have happened in any other circumstances? Because Scott Demore, I mean, I kept in touch with him. He knew about it all. So and he was so proud of me for doing it. So maybe that had a little piece of, of it. That maybe that's why the opportunity was there. But um, just a lot of really great things have happened in the past uh, couple years. And um, I'm just so thankful and I'm grateful for, for being in the place I am now. That's just a small taste of what we've got waiting for you. The four levels to choose from. See for yourself why ad-free shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adfreeshows.com.